From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Navigating through the minefield of misinformation, intelligence operations, predictive programming. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome to this first inaugural episode of Connecting the Dots. My name is Matthew Ard. I'll be your host for this ongoing show every Saturday at the same time, 11 to 2 Eastern Standard Time. But depending on where you are, you make the correct adjustments. I'm very, very happy that we're going to be doing something that I don't think is done nearly enough, which is to attempt to provide context, historical, philosophical, scientific context, which is often lacking in the popular analysis of events that are blitzkrieging on our social media feeds on mainstream media or even alt media, there's a lot of oversimplification. We're going to try to do our best to bring in experts uh, on a weekly basis in order to provide that necessary nuance, that necessary context to give us the ability to navigate through the minefield, uh, which is really what this is. This is a minefield and it is a minefield, uh, a minefield of the mind that has been set for us and a lot of trips Um, A lot of traps have been placed, a lot of misinformation, and this is an information war, so we have to know exactly what the terrain is and what a guiding star would look like. This is where history becomes very important as a guiding star to understand how we are living in history. So there will be a big historical focus and um, a lot of the same principles of folly and wisdom that have shaped wars, renaissances, dark ages throughout all of human civilization are still at play today. We are not voyeurs watching history as if it is something that happened in the past that doesn't have any bearing on the present but there's common principles of human nature common principles of oligarchism of the manipulation of people who think that they know what they don't actually know as plato tried to take issue with in the days that athens was sliding into corruption and becoming an empire and losing its moral fitness to survive this type of a of tendency um, by oligarchical systems to give people a false sense of knowledge of what they haven't earned is one of the key ingredients to what has caused us to embrace self-destruction again and again and again and here we are in the 21st century going through a major major crisis we have a variety it's almost a perfect storm a systemic breakdown we have the danger of zealotry on a variety of levels manifesting in a chain reaction of religious war that could spill over globally with nuclear weapons. We have a variety of things, but more importantly, a collapse of common sense, a collapse of the cultural standards, the belief in morality, which used to animate the best of West civilization for thousands of years. And on top of that, there's a creeping smell of fascism once again in the air. We hear Ursula van der Leyen talking about uh digital euros being brought online central bank digital currencies the idea of the regimentation of human life and even the idea that there would be a better world if there were just simply fewer of us polluting machines on it and we hear this from a variety of angles a variety of degree messages come out different colorings but always with the same misanthropic outcome and with the same type of misanthropic solution for Maybe nation states, this is a type of, of messaging we've heard a lot of, maybe nation states would be uh, would, would be best if they didn't exist anymore. They are the cause, after all, of wars, selfishness, hurting nature. So maybe if we just got rid of those things, we would have world peace and a big kumbaya. This is a very similar thing to what some some were discussing back in the 19, early 20s after uh, World War One. 
and uh, and especially the trauma that was beset across the world by the type of of horrific uh, actions that had occurred to many people living throughout that very very unnatural war. And the solution was just like today, maybe League of Nations world government would be the, the best thing ever. Maybe if we didn't have so many people on the earth, we wouldn't have so much danger of eating up each other's resources and going to war with our neighbors. Maybe fewer people would be better. Maybe eugenics would be the way to do this. So there was a, a similar thing back then. And that that's why with these parallels throughout history, I, I, I always love people who have really immerse themselves into a study of history and science. And so I'm very, very happy that today for my first guest on the show, I have Uwe Ajna, who is a, uh, a friend, somebody who I've uh, I've learned to really respect their mind, mind, who has good instincts when it comes to looking through the misinformation of history. Um, Uwe is a, um, a fellow with the Children Health, Children's Health Defense Fund. Uh, he is a historian and uh, an expert on strategic communications, a consultant who has worked for uh, business, for the public sector, for the Foreign Office of the Republic of Germany at a certain moment of his life. He's been through a lot. Um, so Uwe, I'm very, very happy that we're gonna be here today, that you've decided to agree to uh, my request to talk about some history. So welcome. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's my honor. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Let me ask you this. Um, you've been just as a, a note of personal autobiographical content here. You've been through a lot. I mean, as I just mentioned here, you've been a consultant for the private sector, the public sector. The um, but then something happened, in, I guess, 2020, 2021, where you shifted gears a little bit in your thinking and you found yourself uh, working more for freedom. Um, can you tell a little bit about your backstory and, and how this is all converged on this moment here that we're talking where you've, you're going to be speaking about? Um, some impressively interesting and scary things about our uh, 20th century history and Germany uh, specifically. Yeah, well, so so one of the great paradoxes of life is basically how I came to, to be born. My father um, was a refugee uh, as a boy in the Second World War. And uh, had this not happened, I would probably not have born because he hadn't, wouldn't have met my mother. This is this is one thing, but I grew up in, in quite modest uh, um, uh, family situations. I was the first to go to high school. I was the first to get a university degree, um, and uh, eventually I decided to uh, go into a diplomacy um, because I happened to be in Washington in the summer of 1989 when uh, the wall came down, or at least when uh, in Hungary the Iron Curtain was cut, cut open. I, I, I witnessed this from abroad, uh, seeing what happened in my well not in my home country but uh, immediately in its vicinity so this was very interesting and and my host happened to be a diplomat um, uh, uh, for for the german federal republic so i i thought maybe i would switch my intention to become a journalist and and rather go into diplomacy and that's why i um, applied for the european commission in 1993 after my degree and uh, uh, eventually i got accepted in a in a very lengthy um, uh, um, selection process, uh, uh, but uh, I was one of a chosen few to to be accepted into the European Commission's um, civil service, and uh, so I, I thought I'd I'd, uh, I'd reached the apex of uh, my dreams had come come through. Um, I also had become to I, I'd come to um, get to know uh, one of the 
Young Turks, as they were called then in German politics, Christian Wolf, who is uh, was from the state of Lower Saxony, so my home state, and uh, they had um, happened uh, to have a, um, a change in government in the early 90s. Gerhard Schröder, the later chancellor, came in as new prime minister from another party, and uh, Christian Wolf was then chosen to be um, the successor, basically, uh, of Ursula von der Leyen's father, Ernst Albrecht. And, and he started to change um, his party's politics. Um, he opened it up to, you know, more women's um, uh, uh, commitment to, to politics and stuff. So he, he, he greatly promoted women's and, and other issues. Uh, so he was quite a progressive conservative, if you like. And I I was very much attracted to it and I offered to help him and he he just called me. So we became sort of friends. Yes, I could say friends. We were quite um, close and I happened to run his 1998 campaign. It was the second attempt against Gerhard Schröder. And it was that one where Gerhard Schröder, the later chancellor, became um, the winner by a sort of dirty trick because on the on election day or the day before they appeared a huge advertising in all of the German or the lower Saxony newspapers on the day uh, saying the next chancellor has to be German. It wasn't going to be an election about chancellorship. It was just the state prime ministership. But of course, it, this was the run to the, um, to the um, you know, who would become the uh, the challenger for Chancellor Kohl at the time. And I was really upset. So was Christian Wolf. And uh, it turned out that eventually one of the guys who organized this was very much tied to um, the uh, financial um, industry. Uh, he was running a huge, huge um, uh, insurance business and, and financial services. So he was helping Schröder with a kind of dirty trick to get um, into office um, basically in Bonn. Anyway, so this is where I've come from. In the middle of the road, I was in the in this party. I worked later for Miss Merkel, who also would go on to become chancellor. Um, and so I, I've I've quite an experience in uh, high level German politics. I, I witnessed stuff which otherwise my friends and family would only learn from uh, in the news, if at all. And um, so I, I was I was a party guy. Some you know I would consider myself to be critical thinker still, but yes, I would toe the party line eventually. Um, until uh, in 2000, a uh, party's funding scandal happened where it turned out that Chancellor Cole had, uh, you know, taken um, black money, um, but he refused to own it uh, in, in the way that he re refused to, to tell where it came from. He said he had given his word of honor uh, and, and would not disclose it. This was, of course, a shock for someone who had always... You know, made sure that law and order had to be upheld, and and now he was saying, "Oh, this doesn't apply to me." That was um, the first instance where I said, "Okay, I maybe I'm I'm not I'm not a party guy because I I don't I don't accept this even if this was my chancellor." Anyway, turn fast forward to 2020, the pandemic came, and Miss um, Merkel was chancellor, and I was also scared. I was I was you know doing the right thing um if, if we had to lock down so be it um uh, but i was of course would be observing the the news and of course especially the news from sweden sweden did not follow the, the path which germany uh, followed and the, and the country did not go down today we know they fared much better but they didn't go down they didn't end up in shambles which was an argument for me to say look there is another way it's not without an alternative so i i contacted my former colleagues who had gone on to 
become um, senior politicians, uh, sit in parliament, some who are even holding government office and were trying. I'm sure they were all very, I'm sure they were very, very overjoyed to receive your wisdom and your insights that locking exactly. down wasn't necessary. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have any of it. So that's when I really said, okay, this is, this is strange. Then I went to Berlin, uh, I saw a huge rally there with um, basically hundreds of thousands at minimum, maybe even millions on the streets. It doesn't matter how much it was. It was definitely more than the 17,000, which the national public television uh, was telling the the, uh, the population uh, as it was. And it wasn't right wingers. It was people like you and I. It was families and with children even. It was old people. It was all walks of life. And, and this is when I really understood that this framing, I had to do something more than just write about it or do interviews, uh, translate this. Well, this is what I had done in, in the first six months of the pandemic or so-called pandemic. So I then became an activist. I reached out to children's self-defense and, and the rest is uh, history, as they say. Absolutely. No, and you've done some amazing work so far, and, and I'm sure that you're going to continue doing amazing work. And I didn't know that you had such a, a bent on history as well. I had known you as somebody who had been on Dell Big Tree, and, and you've been speaking uh, regarding health freedom for some time, but I didn't quite appreciate that uh, you had also an instinct for digging into the geopolitical, geoeconomic historical currents that are also framing our current situation, which is lacking, I think, in a lot of people who are uh, who have just woken up and as you pointed out, you were sort of moving through a rather mainstream narrative inside the system for a very long time before you decided, okay, this is the, the shock of, of reality versus perception was too much and you, you broke free. Um, but you had already a foundation due to your work, I guess, and your research in, in history before you, you jumped into politics and you've been able to use these tools. Um, when we, we're going to slowly uh, get ready to transition into a break. And uh, when we do come back, I'm going to have a few questions about uh, about some of the more recent essays that you've published pertaining to why the Nazis didn't actually lose from the authentic state. If by any useful definition of the word lose, World War II, um, it was a battle that uh, that was won. However, it, the war in large measure was not. And I think that uh, you've got a, a lot of very interesting contributions, especially regarding the figure of Hjalmar Schacht and Montague Norman that uh, pertains to a lot of what contaminated the entire 20th century and into our present day. So um, I think without that, with without further ado, let's take a little moment for a break and uh, we'll touch back in with Connecting the Dots with Matthew Eric. TNT Radio's James Freeman. I think at this point now, I'm disgusted that the UK has not called for an immediate ceasefire. The British government is usually quick to condemn many countries around the world for breaking international law. So what is different here? Yes, what Hamas did was terrible. And yes, it needs to be addressed. But whatever Hamas did does not justify the deliberate bombing of civilians because no one can say that it's not deliberate. Um, you can't merely say that civilian deaths in their thousands are acceptable collateral damage. You can never say that, not with these numbers. It is deliberate what is going on. I'm seeing numbers of around 10,000 dead now, including 4,000 children. And that was two days ago those numbers came in. Innocence in all of this. Um, they've never voted for this and they have no say whatsoever in any of it. 3,000 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks in the US and the world looked on 
in horror. And yet 4,000 children have been killed by Israeli bombs and too many dismiss this, saying that Israel has the right to defend itself. James Freeman on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Take us back in time and who was Mike Flynn? He was the National Security Advisor to the President. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming President of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. This moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism, but the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com Are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. Then I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back with Connecting the Dots. I'm joined here with Uwe Alschner, and we were about to shift gears here and discuss some deep history regarding why the Nazis didn't really lose World War II from a specific focus of a figure named Hjalmar Schacht, who Uwe has written about. I've republished this on the Canadian Patriot Review. Uh, people who want to have a look can go there. Um, Uwe, you brought up some very, very important material regarding the role of economics, imperialism, fascism, and how a lot of fools who believe in math mathematical systems controlling their idea of what economics or politics is always allow themselves to fall into a support or at least an inevitable conclusion that some form of fascist control is necessary, whether by the state, whether by big business. There's many pathways to get at effectively oligarchical collectivism. And you did something by by showcasing a certain figure who is a a banker um, or two bankers, Montague Normand and Hjalmar Schacht, and their relevance to, to today. So before we go into to today and their contamination of their thinking after World War II and their legacy, 
Why is Hjalmarshacht and Montague Norman, who are they and why are they important for uh, understanding the events that were leading up to and causing and driving World War II? Right, so um, Hjalmarshacht, uh, sorry, uh, Montague Norman, of course, he is one uh, of uh, uh, very few um, very long-serving um, governors of the Bank of England, uh, so right in the city of London where he has been conducting uh, the affairs of the Bank of England um, throughout the world. And and you, Matthew, and, and, and also your wife, you've done extensive work on on the connection between the city of London and uh, and Wall Street and and uh, what what is it does this mean but what is little uh, known is that um, uh, Norman also had a role in controlling or handling um, those who were acting on the German stage right um, and the way I, I came across this was uh, also because I, I read um, a post from you and and there came up this this name um, Norman, and, and then there was uh, also the name of Horace Greeley, which were, who was mentioned in, I think it was Cynthia's uh, introduction in, into the UFO um, a series, which I highly recommend, by the way, uh, everyone watch. Um, so, so Horace Greeley and Schacht, who was a famous Reichsbank president, um, so everyone in Germany learns about the role which the Reichsbank played in helping Hitler come to power and, and facilitating this power grab, which really wasn't a power grab, but it was an orchestrated handing over of power to uh, the Nazis, and many of them were handled by um, by, by British uh, um, um, oligarchical um, circles. And, and this is something which I looked into with uh, regards to uh, Norman, um, uh, who, uh, before Schacht even was uh, put in into office as Reichsbank president in 1923, so at a very early age, where a uh, very early stage where Germany uh, had been really taking the first blow from the Versailles Treaty um, uh, uh, specifics, um, and and the uh, country was in in uh, hyperinflation and stuff. This this guy Schacht became nominated for Reichsbank president, although he hadn't really had much experience uh, in banking, let alone central banking. So, but he still was picked uh, for the job. And before he assumed office, he went to London, as he wrote in his own memoir. This was highly unusual. And then he writes that uh, Montague Norman became uh, a long, a lifelong friend of his. Um, and, and this is where it all started. I then made, connected some other dots, but this is really how, how, I, how I got into this story. That's extremely important. Yeah. And I think the the role of Hjalmar also that you pointed out in creating um, the world's sort of first major uh, holding company with the help of Montague Norman, the IG Farben uh, chemical complex. That's a, also an important insight into um, how how corporatist fascism works, because people often have a very cartoonish, simplistic idea of fascism is like right wing nationalism or something or the conclusion of just state control. But this is a little bit different. Because you're creating it a is. holding company nominally with private investors um, that then wields more power than the nation state. Absolutely. So, so first of all, IG Farben had been operating before 1925 when it was legally um, uh, incorporated and, and established. Um, but it had been a, a loose um, uh, cattle, basically. Um, but um, to do better business, they came um, to the conclusion that they had to form this 
this um, legal entity IG Farben. And and as you say, um, uh, there are sources who say that Norman um, so that uh, Schacht was instrumental in f- facilitating. Uh, the capital uh, for this to be uh, implemented. Um, in, in, in this way, he was uh, already active there. But he also later, when he was Reichsbank president under the Nazis after 1933, he also helped to create um, fascist um, uh, cartels. Um, so he monopolized the energy and utilities industry in Germany, which at, uh, until then had been quite local and diversified. So many small municipal um, energy uh, producers and, and stuff. And these were driven into a state-controlled um, um, uh, cartel of four, basically, four big players who went on to exist after 1945. And so there is this continuity, which you can see the, the mindset, which was highly influenced by sources from outside Germany, which is, I think, is the main point for us to understand. And when you say the Nazis didn't lose, um, uh, this is something which for a German at first is, is quite, you know, how can you how can you say this? But we have to really understand what it means, what the term Nazi really um, uh, entails, and that it is something which is of a um, of a nature where sources from outside, so those who control world finance, basically world business, mm-hmm. have um, have uh, established an, a series of projects. Basically, this is, I think, how I want you to look at it: a project in Germany, a project in Italy, a project in France, a project in the United States. Let's not forget the business plot. This was also fascist um uh cattle like um mm. structures being at mm. at work uh, but uh, so it, it only happens that italy had been the first successful one the beer hall putsch on hitler in 1923 failed but later on um they succeeded and then they became the more prominent and more dangerous fascists certainly they were very dangerous and very devious and what they did was 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 cruel but it is essential to understand that they have been um, set up, they have been um, informed, they have been uh, drawing upon uh, knowledge like eugenics, uh, eugenics and, and other um, stuff, uh, the, the the whole occult um, um, and sophistry and, and all this. This this comes together and, and it, it's then amalgamated in, in, in a force which eventually may have run an um, array um, which people may not have um, intended at the first time, but we don't know we have to ask questions and there are yeah. serious um points of evidence where we uh, really stop and should stop and 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 do a close scrutiny of of what is before us well you've you've brought up so many different points here uh, that i want to pick on and it's difficult for me it's difficult for me to choose however um you did bring up a matter of the occult and in this particular essay that I'm referring to actually is a follow-up to a short little uh, vignette that you did based upon something um, that had to do with Hitler. And you make the point in this paper and in the previous um, write-up regarding Tavistock and the mind control operations that are central in the organizational structure of the British Empire or any oligarchical system. Mind wars and the idea of mass psychology, mass manipulation is a very important thing how to deconstruct uh, a target in order to reconstruct their mind according to a new mythos a new identity has been something which has been obsessed over for eons i mean that's a very important part for controlling the masses as well as inducting your own initiates who will be expected to be 
dehumanized managers of a very dehumanized system of machinery of government. So this has been something that's been thought over over many, many generations. And you make the point that uh, Hitler and uh, Rudolf Hess, um, there's certain persuasive arguments that could lead one to um, conclude that there was some time spent before World War One, even by uh, Hitler in a little town by the name of Tavistock. And I was wondering if maybe because uh, you mentioned that Hitler was a little just like Montague Norman had a, a very important influence as a representative of the British high command over shocked. You make the point in your essay that uh, Hitler was also a bit of a, a British agent in that sense. Maybe not. Maybe he he wouldn't say so if he were asked. But there's something true about that statement. So maybe you could uh, say a little word about how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, and just of course the question whether he would have noticed, or whether he would have recognized. Yeah. And I'm not saying this is the case, but there are strong indications uh, to to look at this this way. And and you're right. So so Hitler um, uh, is always portrayed as you know the the, the failure, the drop out and, and and never made it to anything really until he was then for some reason or another picked to to lead the beer hall which and it's it's far from really being um true so, so there are a lot of uh, mysteries around him um about his father so his family background and stuff i don't want to go into this too much other than to say that he had a half brother who had who had been um uh, living in in britain um, who had married um, someone, and they lived in, in Liverpool. Uh, and they got married uh, actually in London, in Mayfair, um, in 19, 1911, it must have been. Um, uh, and and so this is some, some indication uh, that Hitler, who at the same time has a black hole in his CV, so nobody really knows where he was at the time. Um, they say that he was in some, you know, um, uh, asylum in, in, in Vienna at the, at the time. Uh, he didn't have a place of residence um, otherwise, so it is completely um, um, unknown what he really was. But then uh, we have also the uh, knowledge that Hitler used to paint, and then uh, in, in Great Britain there was an auction uh, I, I forgot exactly when it was. I think it was 2012 or so, where there was a a water um, a painting um, auctioned off, which showed Hitler. And actually, I came across this from following one of your talks about this connection, a possible connection between Tavistock and Hitler, which uh, had Hitler sit on a very very unique bridge just um, outside of. Tavistock. So in Devon, um, not far from uh, from the city of Tavistock, there is this old medieval bridge, very, um, very, very unique. You cannot uh, mistake it for, for another one. And, and Hitler painted himself. This painting was auctioned off. The British press wrote about it, but they did not write about that this bridge was near Tavistock. But this, of course, is one uh, very um, important indication that he must or may have been there. But there is another one. Tavistock is, of course, the um, you know the stronghold or one of the strongholds of the of the Russell family. Um, uh, so uh, the Russell family, Bertrand Russell being one prominent member of the family, but there are many, many, many very um, uh, important uh, or people who became important in British politics and and history throughout the couple of um, centuries uh, past uh, from the Russell family. They have been uh, allies to Henry VIII. 
um, uh, and and he rewarded one of them, the first, um, uh, I think it was Earl Russell then, um, for the Earl supporting of, uh, him. The Earl, of, the Earl of Bedford, right? Well, no, Bedford came later. First, the, oh, Bedford was, later, okay. Uh, yeah, so anyway, he was, okay. he was um, rewarded with Tavistock, um, the property of the Tavistock Monastery, which uh, was, of course, dissolved by Henry VIII after he had um, uh, founded the Church of England, which, of course, as you point out um, very rightly, um, came under uh, influence from Venice. Um, and, and there was other connections to, to Venetian um, traders being also in the vicinity of the Russell family. This is the first um, um, spot where you can tie it down. But later on, this family, the Russell family, who, who continued to have to hold high uh, offices in the British um, aristocracy, so in the monarchy. So we also need to understand and that the monarchy is not just the king or the queen. It is the whole institution of noble family, of families who have been tied together and who are dependent on uh, um, on one another for power but also for wealth and then um, we have then this uh, family who is situated in Tavistock and fast forward to the 19th and uh, early 20th century there is a guy um, who uh, is uh, I forgot his first name um, um, forgive me but he is one year um, uh, older than Hitler um, and he uh, has his private house just 20 miles away from this peculiar bridge and he has a connection to Hitler which is established in so far that in 1940 when there had been a uh, uh, an attempt to broker a peace between England and Germany or Great Britain and Germany this was done from this member of the Russell family who even claimed that his proposal entail contained the personal suggestions of Adolf Hitler for this uh, for this peace deal. This did not come about uh, and Rudolf Hess is also involved because he flew over to Scotland as we know and he got arrested afterwards. But in any case there is this connection to this peace attempt in the early 1940s uh, to get England out of um, a confrontation with Germany, maybe open up um, the possibility for the Germans to fight the Russians um, in a concentrated way, uh, this did not uh, come about. We don't know exactly why or for what reasons, but what we do know is there is a very strong uh, correlation between contacts of the Russell family of the Tavistock um, um, Institute, even because the Russell family then went on to found the Tavistock Institute, which is not just called Tavistock Institute for the region, also for the for the place, uh, for the street in London. Uh, yes, the, it is the case that it is this place, Tavistock Square in London, but the whole whole area um, um, south of Covent Garden is um, area which belonged to the Earls um, of Bedford uh, and has uh, um, uh, been donated by by this Russell family, basically. So therefore, there is a strong connection to the psychology and to Tavistock and mind control. There is a, con a dynastic connection um, to the British oligarchy. There is a personal connection to Adolf Hitler. There is a regional connection to the bridge. And this all together is very strong indication that we need to look it, into it. Exceptional, exceptional use of eight minutes that you just we've weaved a lot of different moving parts together. And just to keep in mind, Bertrand Russell was also the great pacifist, as he celebrated, who made a, a very a very loud noise 
trying to persuade good Britons and Americans and everybody in the world that they should do nothing in the face of the expansionism of uh, Nazi Germany uh, for peace, of course, which would have resulted naturally in a very easy victory. And you also pointed out um, that the entire faction, there was a faction fight, and the oligarchy often puts things into motion that they don't fully understand what they're going to do as an outcome, and things blow up in the oligarchy's faces. They are not the gods that they want to be perceived as who can just make anything happen that they they so desire buildings falling invaded nation whatever they want which a lot of people have believed i think artificially which has made us impotent to really see that the oligarchy does have a spark of what you might call a perverse brilliance but something very self-destructive and foolish about the oligarchical system too and there was a faction fight where some high-level british oligarchs wanted to go full throttle with the plan for a new world order uh based upon their support for fascism And others said, well, wait a minute, this might make us the junior partner for the New World Order, and we're not prepared to make that compromise. And there were faction fights and other things. So this has all been scrubbed out of history. And that that inability to see the inner disturbance within the oligarchy's um, command, as well as their influence within Germany, has really resulted in a lot of people being blind to uh, what happened after World War II. So we're going to talk a little bit about more, a little more about some of the elements that you brought up just now. And then we're going to go into the present age and the post-war age after our break. This has been TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. With Joe Biden behind in just about every presidential poll, the strategy of the left seems to be to go after Donald Trump even harder than they've been doing for the past eight years, if that's even possible. And on the media side, Joe Scarborough, whose brother-in-law works in the Biden administration, seems to be leading the charge. He will do he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison, execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Just look at his past. And as unhinged as that was, it's nothing compared to what New York Democrat Congressman Dan Golden said the other day. It is just uh, uh, unquestionable at this point that that man cannot see public office again. He is not only unfit, he is destructive to our democracy, uh, and he has to be uh, he has to be eliminated. Now, after receiving some well-deserved criticism, Goldman apologized, said he didn't mean to use that word, eliminated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is all the left has left. So watch for more of the same. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Ballsberg. Catch my show Monday to Friday. 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT Radio Vision. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go, but I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there, providing hot meals, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. To learn more, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Navigating through the minefield of misinformation, intelligence operations, predictive programming. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Right, we're back with Uwe Alschneider, where we have been talking about a lot of forgotten history that best be remembered now before we repeat it. And a, a friend of mine once said a long time ago that uh, it's, fal- it's false to say that history repeat- repeats. 
it's more true to say that it's the fools who repeat history and you're you become a fool by not knowing that history and so we are not going to be fools in this show and we don't want uh civilization to act foolish right now we can't really afford it we have nuclear weapons we have got eight billion lives um the oligarchy is up to their same old tricks so it's really good to know what those tricks are and how uh dupes fall for them the the point that you uh just raised we went through in the previous uh segment the uh the emergence of british oligarchical controls behind the rise of fascism we even brought up the occult though we only touched on it a little bit the way i often think about hitler honestly people treat him like he's this giant strong man who imposed his will onto uh onto history um i really kind of see it the more you dig into the tavistock connections the 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 influencers the handlers of hitler his superstitious occultism all of this stuff his paganism he really does strike me more as like a Charles Manson type, but it's just that sort of like a Charles Manson who made it, who made it big. And uh, we often think of cult leaders as if they're just on the fringes of society, something to kind of think of as pathetic, a little bit weird, uh, maybe dangerous. But the idea of a cult, one of these fringe cults becoming a dominant force in the world, um, shaping policy and military and economic affairs, that's a little harder for people to get their mind around. I'm thinking possibly it's because these cults have succeeded in many ways at shaping the post-war era. Uh, what would you think about that? Well, for sure, um, especially if you look at um, a certain um, series of continuities, which which uh, you cannot help but um, observe sooner or later. And I must say, I, I've come across these um, through my work with Vera Sharaf, the Holocaust survivor who had been pointing out to me that this, what we have been through over the last three years, might, may be the beginning of a fourth Reich. And, and it, I must admit, it shocked me when, when she said it. But of course, her being a Holocaust survivor made me extremely cautious to discard it right away. So I, thought I have to get at Fontes, you know, as a historian, you, you learn to dig up to the source and and and, and take a closer look and, and what what is there to this. Uh, and then you can also see those continuities, as in these cases of the, of the people we've been discussing. So Montague Norman became the um, godfather of Schacht's um, third grandson. And this boy, Norman van Scherpenberg, his father was a diplomat who also later went on to become state secretary um, in the German Foreign Office under Adenauer, um, Norman von Schappenberg, he went on to become one of a, a small number of key figures who um, deconstructed uh, the industrial assets of East Germany after unification and basically made sure that there was no competition for the oligarchies from um, uh, quite sophisticated East German economy, which had been built up uh, during the Cold War. Mm. And that was his role in influencing the trust company uh whose name i can't pronounce was was that it that that influence that controlled or managed the assets of thousands and thousands of businesses and and acres of farmland and millions of acres of farmland and everything else he he took a big role yeah. in that company or that trust right yeah and that br yeah. br and then brought about it hmm? go on he was just one of, of a number of uh, of people with continuity. Um, his mm -hmm. boss, Bigot Boyle, um, the president or, or the second president of this organization, which is called the Toy Hunt, which is sort of, you know, um, a trust. It is it is fiduciary um, trust capital, which was put 
um, under the administration of uh, Birgit Breul, who was a politician um, and the daughter of a banker, Alvin Münchmeier, who had close ties to the Schröder um, banking dynasties. He later went on to uh, establish a, a, a bank, Schröder, Münchmeier, Hengst and Co., which uh, eventually uh, got bust um, and, and, and went bankrupt in the 70s or uh, 80s of, uh, of Germany. But before that, he, the, the father of Birgit Boyle, was in connection with Kurt von Schröder, um, who, of course, had been instrumental in facilitating Adolf Hitler meeting uh, Franz von Papen on 4th of January 1933 in Cologne. There were other people involved who also played some role. But Breuil and um, von Scherpenberg, they met, um, well, I don't know exactly when they met, but they first become on record um, in in the 80s when they uh, were, uh, you know, she was the boss, the minister, and he was the state secretary uh, for her in the Ministry of Finance, right? So um, she didn't have an education. She didn't have a degree. She was a banker's daughter. Uh, and she was uh, from Hamburg, from the upper class in Hamburg. And she was made um, the uh, Minister of Finance under Ursula von der Leyen's father, Ernst Albrecht, as state prime minister of Lower Saxony. They lost the war in 1990 against Schröder. So there was Schröder's first success. Um, and then they um, got out of office, but immediately were um, brought into the Treuhandgesellschaft, which was set up. Um, you know, the East German people wanted to keep this uh, wealth, this, this property together mm -hmm. and really make it uh, people's uh, property and and find a way to distribute this, this uh, these assets in, in a just manner uh, among the people. But uh, mm -hmm. there was a political decision to have a number of people run this. And the first one was a guy um, who later got assassinated. So after a couple of months, um, uh, Detlef Rohwedder got assassinated because he was taking too much care of keeping um, uh, the the employees on board and 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 you know doing some mm. sort of just way and and setting up businesses on the uh, on an independent way rather than selling it off for for um, large corporations basically to take over the whole industry yeah, yeah. so the the the, the uh, refineries were were sold to total which of course is french and there is the connection behind total being also financial industries and stuff and others, um, the chemical industry, which was BASF and, and others, which were, of course, IG Farben um, subsidiaries. And, and this is, this is uh, quite interesting to see that they have been able to have also people uh, in charge who have strong family connections to leading um, personnel uh, in the Third Reich. Uh, with a mindset that never really got, um, you know, looked at, and uh, and and they they succeeded in sustaining their position, and this of course has to do with a lot of um, stuff that's went on in the late stage of the Third Reich. There is the Red House meeting, so the Maison Rouge meeting in Strasbourg in August 1944, uh, where leading German industrialists were told by. Um, by aides of uh, Martin Bormann, that from now on, August 44, it was no longer high treason to export industrial capital assets, patents, money 
abroad, but it was in order to do this, to set up mm -hmm. uh, the foundation for Germany's Fourth Reich um, um, to, to uh, you know, rebound and come back because they knew, know, they knew that this, this uh, battle, this war was lost, but they were prepared to come back. And, and so this is something which can also be traced back into the right, into the Adenauer government. We must not forget that Adenauer, Germans think he was just picked because he was a decent man who opposed Hitler um, in 1933. No, he didn't oppose him. He even called for Hitler to become chancellor in 1932. Um, but he got uh, uh, ousted from his office at Cologne mayor because of alleged uh, allegations of corruption. How could this be? Well, there are, uh, mm -hmm. there are reports that uh, Adenauer, who was married to a cousin of John J. McCloy's wife, John J. McCloy mm. being the first high commissioner of Germany, who essentially decided who would come to run Germany after the war. So there is this, and, and they had been family even in the 1920s, so the Weimar Republic. And that there was a time when the city of Cologne sold off a lot of its property to the Wall Street. Um, yeah. And um, people say there have been kickbacks to Adenauer, which is why the Nazis really went after him, uh, rather than him being uh, a staunch um, um, uh, opponent of the Nazis. So this is something which needs to be looked at. And there are so many coincidences in these matters that it's just not possible um, that uh, that uh, this is conspiracy um, uh myth as they say it is a theory it is a very well sourced and and uh, funded hypothesis um and we must acknowledge um this and and draw our own conclusions from it well yeah absolutely and i mean the the, the very fact that churchill was so adamant to withhold the opening up of a second front for over a year drawing the the war out i've heard very persuasive experts describe how uh, world war ii could have easily have been ended over a year earlier than it really was and it was largely the 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 manipulation and intrigues of british intelligence which constantly just created more buffer more time uh to prepare the groundwork for i think what you just mentioned with the maison rouge is an extremely extremely important meeting with the leaders of uh german industry and the head of the the, the chairman of the nazi party that prepared the groundwork for the next phase or the second attempt uh, that would be a slightly longer form a attempt than the more abrasive let's just get the new world order in right away let's take there was a, a shifting of gears um and this reminded me there was a, a quote by hg wells that i had picked up uh just doing a, a little bit of research on him for a, our, our part two of our film series where he describes um fascism and oligarchical collectivism and he says big business and he's a, a Fabian socialist, right? As he's writing this in 1920, where he's saying big business is no means uh, ant antithetic to communism. The larger big businesses grow, the more it approximates collectivism. It is the upper road of the few instead of the lower road of the of the masses to collectivism. This is what he wrote in his book, Russia in the Shadows. And it was reflective of, of what you just brought up regarding the shifting of gears. And although the state was used in the 20s and 30s, or especially the 30s in Germany to be the driving force of, uh, of fascism, it wasn't different from the more liberal, decentralized, anti-state ideology that was cultivated around the idea that national national sovereignty regulation is 
a thing of the past. We need to have freedom for everybody, free trade for everybody. And that means deregulation of the banks, deregulation of the corporations, so that that would permit for mergers, acquisitions in ways that would normally have been illegal, that crushed the vitality of small and medium businesses. And I was wondering, mm -hmm. is the Bilderberger Group, the role of Prince Bernhard and these other nobles uh, connected to this uh, shifting of gears a few years later? And we only have about four minutes till the end of the segment. I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely, we cannot really explore it in depth, but it must not be forgotten that, in fact, Bernard um, of the Netherlands, who was, of course, Bernard Biesterfeld, uh, Lippe Biesterfeld, so he was a, a German nobleman, um, and he was a member of IG Farben's espionage branch, so it's foreign um, operations. That was um, uh, where he started. He became an SS officer and he became a member of the Nazi party to, uh, about which he lied until his death, which he even said, I can swear on the Bible, I was not a Nazi. And, and this is something which is highly significant in the way that um, Bernhard was put in charge of the Dutch resistance um, in uh, September 1933, uh, just before Operation Market Garden, which was a, a plan to get into the Ruhr um, Valley. And Mont, um, uh, Mountbatten uh, had a plan to maybe even end the war before Christmas, had this succeeded. We all know it failed because the, it was one bridge too far, as the famous Hollywood movie goes. But this Hollywood movie... And uh, interestingly, came up only 1977, one and a half years after Bernhard was uh, came under heavy, heavy criticism for being having accepted bribes from the Lockheed um, Company uh, as being uh, the the um, the head of the Dutch military. Um, so he accepted millions from the Lockheed Company, had a very bad reputation, and people were just beginning to look into the Nazi past of him. They had been looking into the Nazi path of his son-in-law, Klaus von Amsberg. So that was um, uh, Beatrix's daughter, uh, Beatrix, Beatrix's husband. And he was a boy of 18 years when the war ended. So he, there wasn't much he was um, uh, being able to, to tie to. But Bernhard, he got very much unskyzed about it. And they were just beginning to open this up. And it just so happens that they had this huge Hollywood production, which shifted the blame away uh, from, from any uh, thing Bernard. But the persons involved in this battle, they were later were Peter Carrington, who became Lord Carrington, General Secretary of, of NATO and President of the Bilderbergs. And um, uh, it, it happened, these battles were just outside Arnhem in Osterbeek, where the Bilderberg Hotel is. And it was exactly 10 years uh, almost to the day that they met, and, uh, and people say that they met to reintroduce the money which was stashed away um, into the international business. Because just right shortly before that, Hermann Abs, also IG Farben um, and uh, Hitler's banker, because he paid uh, the salary of the chancellor, Hermann Abs from Deutsche Bank, uh, they had managed to sort out the, the patent issues and stuff, which was and the reparations um, for, for Germany. So there, uh, in 1954, there was the situation to finally bring the, in this, this money, which until then had to kept safely uh, because things had not been sorted out yet. We have pulled on so many threads and we I, we could keep pulling and I'm looking forward to having you back on to really explore this a lot more, especially the Prince Philip Mountbatten uh, uh, Bilderberger operation that gave rise to the ecologist movement. So this is going to be something that we're going to explore, I think, in a future segment. Thank you so much, Uwe. I really, really appreciate you taking the time 
for everyone. This has been Connecting the Dots, and we'll join, join back in after the commercial break for Alex Craner.